Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. Hi, writers. I'm Rachel Thompson, and this is Lit Mag Love. In each episode of the Lit Mag Love podcast, I have real conversations with literary magazine editors about their writing lives and the editorial choices they make for their journals. My aim is to help you, lovely writer, discover new journals and understand what goes into the decision to accept or decline your submissions to Lit Mags. Lit Mag Love is produced by Room Magazine and by my course, Lit Mag Love. In this episode, I talk with Robin Richardson. She's the founder of the Manola Review. We talk about how she overcame some early critiques of her writing by men, critiques that she internalized at the time. We also talked about getting men to listen and read. The Manola Review is named after the protagonist in The Taming of the Shrew, after all. And finally, we talk about taking control of your own narrative and turning your writing outward. Robin Richardson is the author of three collections of poetry, including Sit How You Want. She's editor-in-chief at Manola Review, and her work has appeared in Salon Poetry Magazine, the American Poetry Review, The Walrus, Hazlitt, and Tin House, among others. She holds an MFA in writing from Sarah Lawrence College and has won the Fortnite Poetry Prize in the UK, the John B. Santorini Award, the Joan T. Baldwin Award, and has been shortlisted for the CBC Walrus and ARC Poetry Prizes, among others. And her work has been adapted to song by acclaimed composer Andrew Staniland through the Brooklyn Art Song Society. Welcome to Lit Mag Love, Robin. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to have you here, and I'd like to start with you. I'd like to find out authors' origin stories, so can you tell me a bit about how you became a writer? That starts pretty far back. It's funny, I was just talking to someone about that today. I would say grade two was when I realized that writing was the only thing I was interested in and the only thing I wanted to do, which was ironic because I failed grade two. Um, I wasn't able to read. I repeated grade two and then I was put into a special school and diagnosed with a very severe dyslexia. So I actually couldn't read or write until eighth grade. Um, but the whole time I was voraciously writing things no one could read or understand, <laughs> making up stories and poems. So I, I it was a passion of mine, um, but it was also pretty fraught because I wasn't sure if I would ever be able to do it. Um, so I think which lends a lot more value to what I was able to accomplish and what I'm doing now because I really, I really, really worked for it. But yeah, there was never a second option. This was, this was what I was working to from the beginning and I never really had a backup plan. I was like, I'll be a starving artist or I'll be 
an okay artist, but I'm going to be an artist, a writer. Oh, such strength at, in grade two to be able to say, okay, this isn't working out or people are telling me this isn't working well for me, but I'm just going to do it. That's all I cared about. It's, you know, I had so much joy in stories and the idea of writing was the only thing that made me happy about the future. So. And did you know other writers at the time? Had you had any examples in your life? No, not at all. My father was a furniture salesman and my mother was a, a lawyer. I guess she had been, a, she'd been appointed a judge at that point, but she read a lot. I, was, I definitely had books in the house um, and she read to me, but no there, are no, there are no other writers in the family. I wasn't exposed to it at all. I can't say where it came from, except every time someone opened a book for me, I was so excited. Yeah, early reading is so important. That's fascinating on a personal note for me because my father was also a judge who was a lawyer who became a judge. So I feel like we should have another conversation about being judges' kids and what that meant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing. Do you remember the first bit of feedback you had on your writing and what was that like? And I guess maybe barring the, <laughs> the years that it took to learn to read and write um, in eighth grade, but the feedback on your creative writing, on the creative side of it. After that, yeah. Well, so obviously in the beginning it was, it was I don't know what these words mean, you can't spell. Um, but the, I think I had a very inspiring teacher actually in high school. I think it was 11th grade. I think 9th and 10th, I was like, I'm going to be a writer. And I wrote things and they were kind of terrible and nobody cared. But something happened in the 11th grade. The teacher, she, I don't know, she was a great creative writing teacher and she gave us great prompts. And I start, I, it, that's kind of where I started to be acknowledged as the kind of writer I supposed I was. <laughs> Some original content came out and um, it was all really positive feedback. I think I was nominated for some little high school awards. And of course, that, that sort of thing's really encouraging because up until that point, it had all been discouraging and me in my head going, well, someday. Um, and that was the beginning of, of the good feedback. And it really, it really only did get better after that. Nice. I, I want to ask you about things getting better, although you've talked a lot in some of the interviews I read to prepare for this about the men in our field that mocked elements that they saw as feminine in writing, sentimental and self-indulgent, and that you even gave up attempting to write a novel for almost a decade due to the pressing opinion of the men around you. I'm wondering, do you still encounter these attitudes or, or do you f sometimes find that they're still kind of rearing their head in an internal sense? Yeah, oh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, so that has a lot to do with the sorts of relationships I was choosing at that point as well. So I'd, I'll say first that it's not as prevalent now. Um, but when I was in my early 20s, I entered a relationship with a man who also fancied himself a writer and was very, very critical of my work. So there was that early feedback that was positive from the female teacher. And then this man, there were things I showed him that he would just sort of throw across the room and go, I don't know why you would waste my time with this. And I always saw writing as a process and I teach it as a process. So if you come to me with something that's sort of struggling, it's, it's a matter of finding out how to breathe life into it, how to bring it to its feet and where to move forward. It's, it's always a process, but he really shut it down as like, you're born with talent or you're not, which I, which I sort of associated with that patriarchal you know, young men who think like, I'm the next great thing. And I don't, it, it's not going to take me 30 years of work. It's just what I am. So he had that mentality. And that was damaging for me because it was if he decided that what I had written was bad, that was the end for me. Um, so I sort of wrote poetry on the side and hit and every once in a while looked for his approval with the odd poem and just kept kept working, but really not. And, and for, unfortunately, that relationship lasted about seven years. 
that was that was rather damaging. But of course, afterwards, I, I went, that's when I went to grad school, and just everything opened up for me. I was I was away from that influence. And I was around really supportive people. And I was starting to see my own value. And my first book had been accepted for publication uh, by Paul Vermeersch for Insomniac. So things I started to get that confidence back. Um, but I will say the the voice lingered for a very, very long time his voice in particular and a few others, but it was, it was constantly critical. And there were so many moments where I thought, you know, I should, I should put myself on a limb. I should do this. And then I would hear him in my head going, you look like an idiot. And that took, I think another six years to sort of get rid of that influence. Yeah. It's so damaging and, and also just so wrong about writing really. Yeah. <laughs> it's just sort of like, I guess I'm wondering in hindsight, do you sometimes see how pathetic that point of view is that there's just, you're born with talent and. Oh, it's, it's so, it's so awful. And I think there are so many, and unfortunately I think it's something that does happen to men more often because they believe that they should be sort of born and throw things out into the world and they'll be perfect. And if it's not perfect, if everyone doesn't bow down to the first thing they write, they think, oh, well, I failed. This isn't my calling. Or sometimes it's like, <laughs> they, don't, they don't get me, but I'm a genius oh, wow. anyway. Right? That's worse than them. They keep going <laughs> without, without trying to improve because of course they're just already brilliant. I know you're teaching writing now too. And, and so I'm wondering how you see mentoring happening within your writing communities now as compared to when you started writing and maybe even aside from this toxic relationship. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's so different. I will say, I, I teach and mentor based on what I always wanted. I, I, didn't, I never really got what I wanted. I never really found the kind of mentors who gave me the feedback I was looking for and kind of could look at what I was doing and see the potential and give me recommendations as to how to move forward and how to get stronger and more honest. Everyone had their own little bit of feedback that they could offer. A lot of people, a lot of teachers and mentors, I think, felt that students wanted to be flattered in certain ways, maybe with, peppered with a little bit of criticism. So I definitely like to give a lot more constructive criticism and encouragement than I received. And I think in general, there's a much more positive, nurturing feeling out in the, in the community. Like certainly when I go out in Toronto, I feel like the young writers are just, you know, I'll meet with a young writer, she'll call me up for coffee or something, and she'll go, well, you're the eighth person I've met this month who's been willing to sort of help me out. That did not exist when I was starting out at all. You know, things are moving in a very good direction. You started the Manola Review in 2015, and you named it after Catherine Manola, the shrew, in The Taming of the Shrew, who's, as you put it, arguably broken by men in an attempt, and you're, you're attempting to resuscitate that stifled voice. Who is the Manola Review for? Well, it's for me, <laughs> frankly. I just wanted this space, and, I, and, I want, and it, there are spaces for women, but I wanted one that I could specifically curate and start to cultivate my own relationship to the women writing in Canada. I mean, this is the best way. If you want to know what's good out there, start your own journal and get those submissions and read them. I've discovered so many great new writers. But, you know, more broadly speaking, I think, I mean, the focus is really on just having the freedom to say things that you felt maybe afraid to say and to experiment a little bit and to just know that you have your own space that's safe. And for readers, I, I do, there are a lot of men who read it and I really appreciate that. And it's just a matter of them feeling like they can sort of look in and see what's going on with the women uh, right now. And I've also heard from men that they enjoy reading something that they know they can't submit to. And it takes away that feeling of, I hope they accept or, you know, or like my work or how can I fit in? And they, they, they've stopped thinking about themselves and just started listening, which was a great sort of side effect that I didn't expect. Yeah, and the name Catherine Manola, that 
I had seen a production of Taming of the Shrew in Stratford that gave me a panic attack. I mean, it was, it was put on to be a comedy and I couldn't divorce myself from the kind of tragedy and total <laughs> trauma of what I was witnessing. And I just felt like, I wish I could get to know Catherine more. And unfortunately, given her time and situation, I couldn't. And so, you know, the Manola Review is meant to be breathing life into her in sort of in this day and age. Now, what would it be like if she hadn't been in the circumstance that she was in? I love also what you said about um, the readers, the male readers who just started listening. It's reminding me of, of something you said about feminism and literature, that it's being free to write without pandering to patriarchy, maybe even contributing to its downfall. And it seems to me that getting more men listening is actually going to contribute to that downfall. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can't you can't keep a structure like that in place when you recognize that the people you're suppressing are are fully human. <laughs> but we don't. I mean, so much of what we've read and watched is produced by men about men and men keep going, well, I don't understand women. It's like, well, of course you don't. We haven't been telling you anything about ourselves at all until recently. But I think once you once you <laughs> humanize <laughs> by listening, you, you can no longer sort of suppress, not if you have a soul. And you talked also about people having the freedom to say things that maybe they felt afraid to say, the women who contribute to the Manola Review. And I'm wondering if you want to describe the unsympathetic voice, because I was reading something you wrote about that and the, the one that is uncomfortably moving and and how do you know when you've hit on it when you are going through your submissions inbox? That's a tricky one because I think a lot of a lot of people approach that thinking, well, if I just write something shocking and terrible, it will <laughs> it'll be considered the unsympathetic voice. But that's not really it, um, and I think that gets misinterpreted by a lot of submitters to Manola Review. It's it's really it's not about being unsympathetic towards the other. I mean, I think it's very easy to be critical of men or of people who you feel have sort of crossed you. But I think when it when it really gets interesting is when these writers turn the lens on themselves and look very, very closely at their own patterns and their own participation and not not at all in a victim blaming way, but just in a this is the only person whose motives you have total access to is your own. Um, so I really, really appreciate when I get submissions from people who have truthfully and authentically done some soul searching and understood their place in the construct and their way out, as opposed to sort of just pointing the finger and making a judgment or assessment of of someone else or something else. I think we're we really do have to take control of our own of our own narratives. And and this is why when you sort of ask me about that negative feedback from that that male influence and is it still there, I. I really wouldn't say that it's not there anymore because society has shifted so much. It has, but I've changed a lot. Voices like that aren't allowed in my life anymore, and they were before, and that has something to do with me. And I'm interested in women who can see those things about themselves and talk about them as well. Yeah, you, you're saying that it's a personal shift that you experience, but I think it's one that a lot of us can relate to, too. It's that golden nugget we're looking for in writing, too, the specific story that feels very universal. Yeah, and, and I think being honest about yourself is when things get really scary and really unsympathetic, and that's when the poetry gets strong, inevitably. I think you've touched on this a bit, but I always like to ask what kind of submissions that you do not want to see in your inbox anymore. Yeah, yeah, I would just be um, sort of, I would just reemphasize what I, what I mentioned. I think just a straight-on critique of the other is not very valuable, 
So I do see that a lot. I think people think, well, this is a feminist journal. So if I just sort of complain about the patriarchy in a certain way or talk about this terrible thing someone once did to me, and I, you know, that's very easy to do. And you, you can accomplish that in a conversation as well. I, I really think I really encourage people to push further and get something more out of it and, and look more inward. You know, there's sort of a line and things are falling on either side of it when I get submissions. So I really would want to push people to the other side of the line. And then, uh, you know, outside of that, it's also push the craft, really pay attention to what's out there. Try to make your, would you enjoy reading this poem as much as you would enjoy reading uh, Mary Rufel or Robert Frost? <laughs> Is this a quality poem? Sometimes I think people can jump the gun a bit. I don't think you're ready to start submitting until you've done a lot of workshopping, a lot of sharing, a lot of reading, and your poems just feel inevitable. You said before that work without pretense stands out and that you can tell immediately when a piece of writing is trying to be something it's not. Yeah, big time. We'll take a short sponsor break, and when we return, we'll hear why Robin Richardson doesn't think you can really get to that point where you're writing valuable poetry until you've mastered the craft and how to know when that's happened and how long it might take that to happen. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, Literature, Art, and Feminism since 1975. Room currently has a subscription drive on to support our many amazing projects that include this podcast. There are so many cool things going on at Room. and You can check out what's happening at roommagazine.com, where you'll also save on subscription prices and help support our endeavors. Lit Mag Love is also co-presented by my course of the same name, Lit Mag Love. It's an online course to help you publish in journals. You can get smart, fearless, and published with lots of help from me. And in the course, you get strategy and support and a warm writing community. And actually, right now, I have a new online course called Lit Mag Love Ready that is currently open for registration. And in that course, I draw inspiration from the conversation in literary magazines and the editors who produce lit mags. This writing and reading course is going to have you crafting your deepest stories and poems. You can find out about that course at litmaglove.com ready. So you've said before, too, if you want to catch my attention, write something from the gut, not from the intellect. And I'm curious in two ways. One is, is how do you do that in your own writing? What are some of the tools that you have in your writer's toolbox? Mm -hmm. And then also, how do you see that happening in the submissions that you receive, too? That one's a trick because you, I don't think you can really get to that point where you're writing valuable poetry from the gut that works until you've really mastered the craft. So I, I think that's one of those things that you sort of, after five, six years of really, really practicing, you're ready to submit a poem that is from the gut, but is also valuable. It's like learning how to play the piano before you can sort of wing something beautiful. It's, you, you, I, but I think it has to get to a point that you're not overthinking it and you're not trying to sort of form the perfect poem, but, the, but you, you have such an innate sense of meter and rhyme and metaphor that, when you have something to say, you're going to be able to say it fluidly. So that is a, that is a difficult thing to do and there's a bit of magic involved almost. Um, the kind of magic that comes with many, many thousands of hours of practice. In my own work, how do I catch that sort of thing? I would say 
if it doesn't feel inevitable, if I feel like I'm trying to write a certain kind of poem, it, I can already feel it failing. Uh, also, if I sort of go, oh, that was so clever. <laughs> Look what I did with those two words, then it's, it's probably not very good. I think there was a, a time when that kind of clever verbal gymnastics was considered very valuable and I just, I am losing interest in it personally. I, I can't speak to its, its value outside of that, but I really do appreciate the sort of almost um, more modernist American approach, you know, really telling a story with meter <laughs> and having something worth saying. And every once in a while, that will need to break into some serious abstraction and something that sounds quite poetic in order to, to, to tell that, that story because it's a complicated story. But if it doesn't need to break down, don't break it down on purpose. And I, I see that a lot. I see a lot of people overcomplicating their word usage or breaking up syntax when it's really not necessary. And it's just, I think, they're thinking, well, this is what makes it a poem and not a piece of prose. So it, they're kind of coming at it backwards. I think it needs to be mastered before it can be manipulated. It would be like a painter starting off with an abstract Picasso instead of learning to paint classically first. In terms of my own work right now, right now I'm, I'm writing a whole new manuscript that is all basically prose poems with no punctuation and no line breaks. They're full justified. And they sort of, each one, I mean, there's a greater theme of a kind of uh, an unconscious processing. We're looking at dreams, at archetypes. And then within each poem, I sort of take a theme and just beat it to death. Um, it, so it becomes kind of repetitious and it moves through this whole journey of looking back through archetypes that were implanted in my own psyche or in the collective unconscious at a certain point and moving through this, this journey with them. At this point, I think I'm pretty good at catching myself in anything that seems forced. I, I, I just, I'm not trying to write good poems anymore. And I think that's the heart of it. I think it just doesn't happen. I don't, I don't fall into that trap anymore. I would also say, you know, for, for when I, I was still learning that, and I say this to my students all the time, if you, if you are wondering if something is cliche, it's definitely cliche. So take it out and try another 10 times before you get something that's probably original. And that's, that's a really, I mean, that's what's so thrilling about poetry is you have this, you're like, okay, I need, you know, three beats and I need it to sort of reflect a kind of bluish hue. And I also need it to say something violent, but not overtly violent. And I also need it to have a lot of T sounds. And you can spend the next three hours coming up with that word. But if you fall short and you throw something in that you think might work in the meantime, you're failing. It's hard. <laughs> I like how you brought this back to students too and, and what you said earlier about writing being a process and it is something we develop over time. And I also want, want to think about that in terms of lit mags too because there's also, you know, people aren't going to be writing poetry for five or six years in a vacuum and then all of a sudden have that epiphany of, okay, now I'm, now I'm not trying to write good poems and it's not cliche, it's working and I can finally send it out. There's that, that back and forth that happens with an editor and that I think that's important, an important part of the process. And I'm wondering what writers should expect when their work is accepted by you and if you make developmental suggestions, how closely do you work with the writers? A lot of the work I accept from Manola is already is already pretty close to publication ready. Um, if there is editorial, it's often trimming. A lot of poets don't realize it. They're, they're being redundant when they're being redundant. And I say this to students as well. If you, if you are describing a wedding dress, you don't need the word white anywhere in that poem. So taking out anything unnecessary is often kind of one of the last stages. 
of editing and also, and just catching those moments of sort of, are you trying to impress me or are you writing something inevitable? Uh, before that, when it's a more involved, when I'm doing um, workshopping or editing someone's full manuscript or editing their submission to go to other people, I mean, that's a lot earlier in the process and involves a lot more, more editorial. And what you would expect from that or what you should expect from any, any mentor or editor would be, you know, that they take the time to really understand your language and your work and where the value in it is. You know, there shouldn't be a kind of blanket. Well, this is how I edit. This is what I'll tell you needs to be done. I think everyone's different and everyone needs slightly different guidance. So identifying the strengths and identifying the weaknesses and trying to understand what's the best next step. So it, it'll be different for every student, but a lot of the time it's sort of like, look, you, you get really strong when you're not talking directly about the thing that bothers you, but you're sort of talking about a movie whose theme might be somewhat similar and you're getting very narrative and you're getting very, very redundant and there's strength in that. And so let's explore that a little bit more. And then once we explore that, let's talk about refining it craft wise and so on. So it changes from poet to poet, but I really, I think you should feel like your editor knows what your potential is. I think that's the key. For sure. And, and how, how has editing the Manola Review informed your own writing? That's an interesting question. I, I don't know how much it has. I think it's informed my appreciation of women writing in North America primarily, but I, I don't know how much it's actually influenced what I'm doing myself, interestingly enough. Except to say, I, I certainly don't take for granted how much quality there is out there. There's so much good work and so versatile, but it's also uh, so varied. So I, I don't see a lot of specific trends and I don't, I, don't, I don't see a lot of ways that it sort of made me think, okay, there needs to be more or less of this. I think what I'm doing is so rooted in itself right now, at least, that I don't think I can answer that question in, in, any, in any honest way saying, okay, well, the things I've edited have sort of pushed me in a specific direction. They've certainly changed me as a as an editor and as a mentor, um, just in terms of seeing seeing what's out there and helping helping people understand what sort of conversation is happening. What I'm loving about that answer is seeing that arc too, where you went from like your personal arc is is pretty inspiring. Where you're so like you're saying you're really grounded and rooted in the work that you're doing right now, mm-hmm. whereas before there was more of that insecurity and and you were concerned about what others thought about your work now it's like yeah I'm doing my own thing and and I'm helping other people do their own thing too yeah yeah I would say there's definitely I've reached a point in my in my writing that uh you know I'm there there's work that still influences me to some degree but I just at this point of uh there's a lot coming out a lot has been uncovered and right now at least until the next sort of transformative experience or big breakthrough uh I think I have a lot to work with in a very specific way so that's kind of not, not shifting very much right now for me, which is, yeah, like you said, it's good. I know what I'm doing. Can you describe any works that stand out as ones you felt really important that you published in Manola Review? Our first year was really, really powerful. I mean, it, it helps that the first year was the one where I could sort of go to everyone I knew and I liked and say, okay, give me, give me work. I love Shannon Bramer's work. I think it's an issue two or three. And she came out with her, her book with Book Hug about motherhood. And I thought that, and I'm seeing more and more, and I have some students who are writing that too, the, the ability to really honestly talk about motherhood, I think is, is a new development and it's very powerful and heartbreaking. Uh, so she was, she was one that really stood out. T. Kara Madden, she recently 
uh, released a book in the US, I forget who the publisher was, she gave me a short piece about being a youth in Florida and watching these adverts by this man on, I think he's on a yacht with a bunch of bikini and women. And it's just like a very subtle way of showing that seed be planted in a, in a kind of young female mind and her ability to now go back and understand how her perception of herself as a woman developed at that time. Her book is called The Tribe of Fatherless Daughters, I believe. I'm sh- I haven't read it yet, but I'm sure it will be well worth reading. Um, I'll note that I'm going to link to all of these and any other works that we talk about right, in the yeah. show notes. <laughs> yeah, I did, well, now I just want to sort of list off everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more. It's exciting to hear. Uh, Aja Moore, I believe. she She's one I really, it was this this brutal, great poem and it's in, I think, the third issue. And when I asked for her bio, she was like, this is my first published poem. And I thought it was fantastic. I think I've mentioned that before. It was just a great moment. That's another thing I'll say. I'm really, I'm not stuck on bios. Like, you know, you really don't need to be an established poet to submit to Manola Review. There are so many good up and coming poets or students who have some of the best work to offer. So don't be afraid. And I love when I can sort of pit that, I'll have her next to Catherine Graham, you know? So that's always really exciting. Also great to mix. I had a lot of people from New York, probably because that's where I did my MFA, submitting. Um, So combining them with the Canadian poets and allowing people to sort of see the similarities and differences. There was a very vulnerable poem by Cade Lebron in uh, issue five. I love Lauren Turner's piece in the same issue. What is your current acceptance rate? Do you know of the people that send in unsolicited work, how many do you accept? I would say one in 50 about that. Um, but I'm really not sure. Yeah, so like around 2%. Yeah, about that. It seems like the standard, uh, most journals I've spoken to, it's between three to five or two to five. Yeah, and there's, you know, and there's, there's and then there's another, you know, 10% that I invite to resubmit. I'll also mention Paula Ferrente. She, I published her fiction and her, her poetry and she's she's got a chapbook that just came out with was it palimpsest jim johnstone's press which is which is great yeah and there's a lot i invite to resubmit a surprising number and this is one thing i'll say to, to people who are submitting uh don't submit one poem there's something about that that's off-putting and, and even if i like that poem i kind of think you know respect me enough to give me a couple to choose from three or four so often when people send one poem that i like i'll, I'll say okay this is interesting but do send me more when you have them. I also want to know that you have a body of work. You don't just have one poem that you've been sitting on for a while. When you're looking at submissions, and I know you're focused on poetry now, though, do, are you looking for more experimental work or is it kind of anything goes? Yeah, I would like to see more experimental work. I'm surprised that there's not that much of it. For a while, I was, I was looking for artists, but I, I was having a hard time. I think that's something I need to put more effort in soliciting. A lot of the work we were getting just wasn't the right fit at all. I have a very finicky aesthetic. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind a bit of more, especially hybrid between sort of poetry and prose or flash fiction, things like that I'm open to. While I'm not officially taking fiction submissions, I have been approached by a few people who have some ideas uh, and I sort of said, yeah, send them, send them my way. I'm not afraid to take on a few, but I really don't have time for myself to do long, long form submissions. I will say also, when I, when I founded Manila Review, I was hoping for more critical writing. I was hoping for nonfiction sort of critical essays. And that just wasn't coming at all. 
And so I, I don't know if you have thoughts on that or if you've experienced that it's much more difficult to get essays out of people. Although at the beginning, we didn't have much of a budget. So I, I can respect too that you'd rather send an essay to someone who can pay a hundred bucks for it. But we, we are paying now an honorarium of $20 a poem. We have a Patreon that supports that. And if it falls short, I am not afraid to sell it to sort of pay out of pocket. I want to make sure that at least there's sort of something. But this is entirely self-started and we don't have funding at this point. Those are all great things to note about the long-form critical writing. We used to publish essays like that a while ago. We haven't for years. I think there's been talk about bringing it back. But I just know a, like a trend that I see in the journals I'm speaking to. And, you know, that's like through my lens of who I select. But it is usually nonfiction is the smallest pile in the submissions pile like it's harder to get more nonfiction in general and then therefore it's harder to take a quality nonfiction because you just have fewer that you're selecting from which which is unfortunate but I, I respect it too I mean it's harder to write it takes more time <laughs> and once you're finished it especially if it's someone investigative you know you want to try and get get as much as you can for it so that's un completely understandable can you tell me about how writers can follow and connect with you uh, yeah, so, you know, my contact is listed at manolareview.com. There's the, you know, it, anything pertaining to Manola Review should go to the Manola Review email, which is, I think, just a Gmail account. It's under the contacts. I also have my own website, uh, sithowyouwant.org. And, you know, same sithowyouwant at gmail.com is how I can be reached. I have a mailing list. Uh, so I send out updates on workshops, seminars, and mentorship uh, a couple times a month to that mailing list and update regularly the courses and seminars that are available on my website. I've also started a project. It's, it was, I've titled it Sid How You Want, but it's prose mostly that are coming out every week as I'm just finding I have tons of content, but I don't want to be shaping it in, into these formal submissions. On, you know, I've got already formal essays coming out, but it's nice to just have these weekly sort of check-ins, things that are too long for Twitter <laughs> and a little too formal for Twitter, but I want to create a place where I can engage with people. So it's a membership based site. It's a German site it's called Steady HQ. So people can become members for $250 a month to read everything or five and up to sort of engage on various levels. And it's, it's everything from a journal entry to uh, craft advice, poetry advice. Like I'll answer any question you have depending on the level of subscription. So it's a, it's a strange new format, but I'm testing it out and I sort of like the idea of it. So we'll see how it goes. I love hearing about projects like that and also about creating kind of that intentional community around writing too so that's really cool yeah it's very I like that it feels very open and informal to me right now I'm not sure what's going to come of it but I just felt this need to do it nice well thank you so much for sharing your lit mag love with us today Robin thank you for having me I really appreciate you being here and people can submit to Manola Review on manolareview.com we should clarify it's the people who can submit are people who do not identify as male. And you're paying about $20 per submission, you said? We're looking to raise it, but right now it's just, it's sort of what comes in Patreon, but um, we'll see, we'll see. I would love to pay more, but right now it's just a sort of a token, a thank you and we appreciate you. And uh, we try to promote the hell out of your work. <laughs> Wonderful, well, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. So what can we glean from my conversation with Robin Richardson of the Manola Review? I think there were a lot of good points that she made about craft and about really taking the time to 
understand and develop your own writing before you're ready to be a poet and understanding that you're in in this over the long haul. One of the things she tells her students is if you're wondering if something is cliche, it's definitely cliche. I thought that was a good gut check that she gave us. And she mainly is publishing work that's already pretty close to publication ready. Uh, she also wants you to submit more than one poem, that there's something that's off-putting about submitting just one poem, and that she wants to know that you have a body of work, that you've put the time in. And clearly, this is an editor who does really put the time in and pays attention to the work of other writers, too. She talked about good editors and mentors are the ones that take the time to really understand your language and your work and where the value in it is. Also, there was another gut check in there too about working with editors and mentors that you should feel like your editor or your mentor knows what your potential is. Another thing to note about the Manola Review is that they are not stuck on bios. So you don't need to really have some kind of established track record in order to publish in the review. And in fact, one of the things she talked about delighting in was publishing first-time poets, people having their first publication, alongside really established writers. So you can read the Manola Review up at manolareview.com. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, Literature, Art, and Feminism since 1975, and the Lit Mag Love course, an online course to get smart, fearless, and published with lots of help from me. Sound editing for this episode is done by Micah Lemiski, and the transcript for this episode was done by me. I'm your host, Rachel Thompson. If you want to give us some love in the form of a review where you get your podcast, we would love that, and it helps other writers discover the podcast and keeps us going. You can find us online at litmaglovepodcast.com, where you'll find show notes for this episode. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook at litmaglove. Thanks for writing and reading literature, and thank you for listening to Lit Mag Love. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.